from Melbourne, Peter Credlin. Good evening and welcome to the show. A very, very busy news day in Canberra and right around the country, which you can bet. We'll get you up to speed right here on Credlin. Still to come tonight, on track, vaccine rollout looking likely for early March. Australia's medical regulator today approving the new AstraZeneca COVID vaccine. Language lunacy. The nation's top university has told staff to stop using words like mother and father. What are we going to replace it with? I'll tell you about that later in the show. And we'll bring you all the latest two from Victoria, including the fallout after we broke the news about two very different nebulizer stories. Did you speak to him yesterday? And if so, what was the nature of that conversation? I can confirm I did speak to um, uh, the family. It was a productive conversation. And if there are any actions or um, uh, uplifts, we'll consider that as part of the, the incident review. So do you now believe his account that he had told someone he had a nebulizer? Like I said, I'm happy to... Uh, what will happen with the uh, information we've gleaned is we'll include that. It's a simple yes or no. Do you believe his account? Because initially we were told that he didn't tell anyone. Well, it's, it's not as simple as that, and I'm not going to uh, breach their privacy any further. But first, at one level, some will argue that the case of alleged rape in a federal minister's parliamentary office mainly concerns the victim, the perpetrator, the employer and the police. At another level, though, it's an incident that says a lot about how politicians as employers are out of step with the community. At a deeper level still, it's a comment on the shallowness and the crassness of the broader parliamentary milieu and not just the government parties here either, all sides of politics, the Greens and the crossbenchers too, replete as it is with people who are happy to make the rules but don't want to live by them. As a parliamentary staffer myself for much of my adult life, 16 years. Eventually a Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, I never bought the idea of work hard, play hard. Anyone who worked in any office I ran knew I took a fairly dim view of the routine partying that goes on every Wednesday night in sitting weeks at whatever the current favourite Canberra watering hole might have been. I always used to say to staff, go out for dinner by all means. But don't get a name for being a bar flyer or a gossip because that stuff ends up dogging you in this building. Rightly or wrongly, that's true, true, and for women, sadly and wrongly, it's doubly so. Now, the lawyer in me says the accused has a right to innocence until proven guilty, and our system is built on that. But I also know how that building works, and a minister's office, and a prime minister's office too, so I'll say this. Everything Brittany Higgins said last night shocked me, but none of it surprised me. That in itself is an indictment, isn't it? Now, I listened carefully to the Prime Minister's comments about Brittany's allegations today and her treatment by his ministers and what he said, condemning it as he did in the strongest terms. And then asking one of his backbench MPs, Celia Hammond, a former university vice-chancellor, to conduct an inquiry into Parliament House culture and one of his senior public servants to look at ways to improve the lot of staff, to improve the support. But it's not enough, is it? I'm sorry. Given this is an allegation of rape inside a minister's private office, it doesn't cut it for me. Neither an MP nor a public servant have any understanding of what political staff face in these jobs. MPs, whatever their behaviour, look at Craig Thompson and the prostitutes, whatever MPs do, they're basically untouchable because in the end, only the voter at an election can remove them. It's almost the same for the public servant. Indeed, the terms of their employment guarantees them job security and tenure, pay rises and protection. Not so for political staff. The difference here is that unlike the MP and the public servant, political staff are expendable. They have no security in their job. They can be pretty much sacked summarily without cause. You'll say, what about unfair dismissal laws? Well, let me tell you, you can drive a truck through them when it comes to political staff, and MPs do, with a bit of an office restructure and a payout to make the matter all go away. Now, a public servant is employed under the Public Service Act, and political staff, well, they're employed under something altogether different, the Ministerial and Parliamentary Staff Act, and any inquiry that doesn't look at this honestly PM 
is not an inquiry worthy of the name. It's also important to recognise that parliamentary staff are often ambitious as well as idealistic. They want to get ahead. They perhaps want to run for parliament themselves one day. Indeed, the parliament is full of them. They understand that complaining about anything, even something as serious as sexual assault, goes against the grain when the last thing you want to be known about that building is as a troublemaker. And that's how some will see these allegations. But that stinks. I know, I've been there too as a young female staffer. Nothing as serious as these allegations, but by God, I wish the 26-year-old me had known how to stand up for myself as my 40-year-old self learnt to do. Now, it's true there are already some processes in place to deal with complaints and staffing ranks, but as Brittany Higgins found out, it's not a very effective system. It's a system better set up to deal with less severe claims than rape. As I said, very few staff have confidence that the current complaint system respects their basic right to both due process and confidentiality. And confidentiality matters a great deal inside a building that's renowned for the the politicos and the media horse-trading gossip. One of the other issues here that needs to be addressed is the absence of mid-career women in the staffing ranks, women in their 30s and 40s, who have the ability to mentor and speak up more than women in these junior roles have. We're missing these more senior women in political offices because the job's hard enough without having to juggle family life, making all of it nearly impossible. We often hear MPs say that, don't we? But it's OK for them in the end because the MP is the boss and taxpayers have built them a childcare centre at Parliament House and they get help to fly their family around. Spare a thought for the staffer. That's why the place is full of young women like Brittany or women like me without children. And that doesn't foster policy development, does it, that reflects how the world really is outside the Canberra bubble if women, mature women, women in their 30s, 40s and 50s are absent from the debate. I always felt it was an important part of my role in opposition and government to really build up the number of women in these senior staff jobs. And that happened. I'm proud to say, both in terms of the senior women in the then Prime Minister's office and the fact that we got to 50% in terms of female chiefs of staff, no quota, absolutely on merit. I even went so far as to set up a network for female staff precisely to give younger women the sort of solidarity that's needed to get ahead in politics or perhaps to run later if that's what they wanted to do. It's one of the many worthwhile initiatives that didn't survive the change to Prime Minister Turnbull. It's never been revived. Perhaps that's something Scott Morrison might now want to pick up. But as important as all of this is and was, in itself, it isn't enough, is it? I mean, these allegations occurred in an office where the minister and the chief of staff were women. Women in positions of authority are not enough if they don't act with that authority. And on this plainly, change has to occur at the top where the influence is the greatest, and that's the PM's office, and the PM must lead it. Saying as he did today that he didn't know about this allegation of rape until the past 24 hours is damning. His office did know, says Brittany Higgins, but he says they didn't. Brittany Higgins says that the Prime Minister's Principal Secretary was aware that she had been sexually assaulted in the Defence Minister's office soon after the reported assault in March 2019. When and how did the Prime Minister first become aware of the reported sexual assault of Brittany Higgins? As I said this morning, I became aware of the alleged sexual assault uh, at about 8.30 yesterday morning. That is true. That is when I became aware of it, Mr Speaker, and the first that my office uh, became aware of an alleged sexual assault, I'm advised, uh, was on the 5th of April of this year. Sorry. No, the, the 12th... Of, I'm sorry, I've misread that. Apologies. The 12th of February 2021. Nor, he says, did the PM's Defence Minister tell him or his office... 
Brittany Higgins was reportedly sexually assaulted in the Defence Minister's office almost two years ago. The Prime Minister said just here that his office was not informed about this until just weeks ago. Is it acceptable that the Defence Minister was aware that a reported serious crime had been committed in her office but did not inform the Prime Minister or his office? The Prime Minister has the call, Mr Speaker, and it shouldn't happen again. It's no wonder there's a sense amongst staff, especially female staff, on the left, on the right and all across the crossbench, the system is stacked against them if an allegation as serious as this is not serious enough for the PM to be informed. Now, there's just no way I would have kept a similar allegation from my boss, nor am I ever aware of a minister keeping this sort of allegation from a prime minister or his office. But if that's what happened here, then for God's sake, Scott Morrison, the system must change. Political parties that routinely complain about women not wanting to enter public life, well, they have their answer, don't they? Enough is enough. All right, let's go to Canberra now for tonight's political headlines. A shot in the arm for Australia's vaccine rollout, with the AstraZeneca jab given the tick of approval by the TGA. The vaccine has met requirements for uh, standards for safety, quality and efficacy. This is the second vaccine that uh, we have approved for COVID-19. The regulator giving the green light for the vaccine to be used in everyone over the age of 18, despite some concerns about its effectiveness in those over 65. Someone only has a few weeks to, uh, to live. You don't give them a hip replacement and you may not give them a vaccine or a medicine. So that's where we're hinting at. But uh, the vaccine is recommended... Uh, for use in all ages. Two jabs will be required, preferably 12 weeks apart. It seems that if you leave it more and more weeks, but you do get uh, greater, greater protection. Daniel Andrews says Victoria is well placed to end its statewide lockdown on Wednesday as it records two new COVID cases today. Hopefully see a continuation of the trend that's, that we've seen these last few days and, and then we'll have good news, for, uh, good news for Victoria and the strategy will have worked. The Premier also revealing he's actively pursuing alternative quarantine arrangements for return travellers. This will be based in large part on the Howard Springs model. The two obvious candidates, uh, Avalon Airport, you've got space and you've got an international terminal uh, and of course Melbourne Airport as well. And the Prime Minister has publicly apologised to a former Liberal staffer for the treatment she received after she was allegedly raped at Parliament House. Jenny and I spoke last night and... She said to me, you have to think about this as a father first. What would you want to happen if it were our girls? Scott Morrison announcing new processes and reviews to improve complaints handling as Parliament is rocked by allegations Brittany Higgins was sexually assaulted by a former Liberal staffer in Defence Minister Linda Reynolds' office in 2019. I unreservedly apologise to Brittany Higgins. Listening... Uh, to Brittany described the depression and the trauma she experienced in that subsequent time. It is very, very clear to me that more could and should have been done to support her. Apologies aside, questions likely to continue about why PM Morrison wasn't personally informed about the alleged assault earlier and whether his senior colleagues handled its fallout appropriately. Is it acceptable that the Defence Minister was aware that a reported serious crime had been committed in her office, but did not inform the Prime Minister or his office. The Prime Minister has the call, Mr Speaker, and it shouldn't happen again. Trudy McIntosh, Sky News, Canberra. All right, for more on the big issues today, making headlines, joined now from Canberra by Sky News political editor Andrew Clannell. Andrew, I, I want to go first to these very serious allegations made by Brittany Higgins. It's really dominated Canberra today. Of course, the discussions now move to probing of, of what the Prime Minister knew, if anything, what his office knew, what the Defence Minister knew and how they handled these allegations uh, from March 2019. Of course, a lot of questions today in question time. It's been a pretty dramatic couple of days. Where is this up to tonight? 
Well, I think it's it, it's up to the fact that the Prime Minister needs to take firm action on the culture around this place or uh, he'll continue to bleed on this issue, to be perfectly frank, Peter, not to mention all the question marks about why wasn't he informed. If he wasn't informed, as he says, what else isn't he being told about by his ministers and his staff? It's a terrible look for the PM, to be frank. And it kind of beggars belief that uh, shortly prior to the 2019 election, there can be an alleged rape in this building, in a minister's office, that the minister is told about it and that doesn't find the way to the Prime Minister's office or the Prime Minister, that information. Uh, bearing in mind if that story exploded, what, what, what could happen in regards to it? But generally, apart from that, as you say, it's quite shocking. It is absolutely shocking that in a, in a building which is, uh, security is supposed to be safe, that this could actually occur and that this young woman feels hard done by in relation to it. And I think all the talk is that Macaulay Cash uh, handled uh, this young woman's situation better than Linda Reynolds did uh, once she moved mm -hmm. to that office. Uh, but, again, that points to the fact there are two Cabinet ministers with knowledge, but the Prime Minister apparently not. Now, you spoke about your experience. Uh, I would have thought the usual experience, once such a serious matter came to the attention of the Minister and her Chief of Staff, that would immediately go to the PMO and that would immediately go to the PM that information in 2019. What do you think? Well, that's my experience. My experience as a Chief of Staff in the Howard Government, if there was anything of, uh, of notice, it was reported into the PMO. That was something that Chief of Staff had. There was a counterpart in the PMO. If it was elevated enough, I went uh, straight to the Principal Private Secretary myself, or if it was political generally, or if it was uh, policy-related or whatever else, uh, it went to the Chief of Staff. So that's the practice. And I also know in the, in the PMO, having been the Chief of Staff in that, that building, um, you're given all the rats and mice issues as well as the serious issues. There's no way you can't classify an alleged rape going into an election period. And let's not forget the time. You know, this is, this is the Julia Banks, Julie Bishop complaining about the Liberal Party and women. You know, remarks that I don't agree with then, didn't agree with then, and I still don't agree with now. Um, but all of that was... was you know, absolutely front and centre. Remember where Australia was back in March 2019. So for their f an allegation of rape to be there and on the table and not then discussed uh, with the PM's office on the cusp of an election, look, it doesn't stack up to me. It honestly doesn't stack up to me. Uh, and I suspect, you know, this is where there needs, I think, to be more of an investigation. No offence to Celia Hammond, but more of an investigation than just a backbench MP being involved. And... You know, a number two in the Prime Minister's own department. You know, I made the, the point. MPs, MPs and public servants have got no bloody understanding of what it's like to be a political staffer on the left or on the right. You know, it is one of the most vulnerable, high-pressure jobs in this country. And I think that the PM and I think the opposition leader honestly need to come together and do better here, both sides of politics. And the sense you get is that uh, that Deputy Secretary, from what the PM said today, will look at who knew what when and who should have known something. And that raises the questions as to whether heads will roll in relation to this. Because if Scott Morrison did not know about this until the last 24 hours, doesn't he have to sack someone over that? Well, I think, I think the PM uh, looks like he's been deliberately kept in the dark. I mean, and that's what you, you would expect of, um, you know, senile leaders around the country, for someone else to be really running the country, not you. And that's not the case with, uh, with the Prime Minister. We know he's right across all the issues. So for him not to be told, I think he's... Uh, well, I think it's a sackable offence. He'll make that judgment. Uh, and if he was told, and I've no reason to doubt his word, um, but if he was told, again, that's, that's hugely significant. And I, I don't think this is going to go away... Quickly, I know people at home will have other bigger issues, particularly those in Victoria tonight, but I think in terms of the Canberra political class, this is really significant. And I think it's cut through, Andrew. You now, I've, I've had messages yeah, from has. a lot of, of people that are not in the political world. This has cut through like nothing else. I think there's a lot of women out there tonight are pretty angry uh, that it seemingly took Jenny Morrison to tell the Prime Minister he should be upset about a rape allegation and what would it be like if it was his girl's. 
I think any bloke, whether he's got kids or not, girls or boys, anybody in the country, um, they don't have to be a dad, they don't have to be told by their wife. I think anybody should say that allegations of rape are serious and disgusting and need to be dealt with uh, with the utmost severity. Anyway, I'm going to leave it there. I want to go into a couple of other issues while, we, while we've got you and I don't want to run out of time. Um, I was really surprised with these statistics out today about the returning numbers of, of people to Australia. Now, I naively assumed it was full of Australians and, and permanent residents, so citizens and permanent residents, considering we've still got so many overseas waiting to come home. These stats out today from Border Force say that 73,000 foreign nationals, so not Australians, are in these hotel quarantine places. Uh, this is numbers from March last year right through till now. That's almost a third of all of these international arrivals. Uh, I don't know. I don't know that this is a particularly good look, is it? Yeah, it's something that would cause uh, the community some concern. I think a lot of the people in the public don't even want Australians back. They're so worried about the virus. I guess my question on that is that 71% of Australian citizens, 29% non-citizens or a lot of those permanent residents, but they aren't Australian citizens. Nevertheless, there seems no, 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 no. that people are no, being... The yeah, permanent, let, let me just jump in there. Permanent residents and citizens are in the one category. Uh, this 73,000 are non-citizens, so they're foreign nationals. They're not permanent residents. They're visa holders who might be on skilled migration. Or wow. family members who are not citizens, not permanent residents, but somehow connected to someone who is. So we actually do have migration, even though they're telling us we don't have any at the moment. That surprises me. I know there'd be special exemptions, but or perhaps some are in the queue and already processed and allowed to come in. But that is a surprise when there's such pressure in terms of people coming in. We know the New South Wales government is trying to get international students in, and I believe South Australia's taken some international students in. So there's all that. There's yeah. In order to get the economy going again... Or that's pretty important, but first we have to get on top of the virus and particularly through the use of the vaccine. So, uh, yes, that would, would not be a popular thing with the Australian public. This is a massive stress on the government as well. There's absolutely no doubt about it. And, look, one of the reasons Scott Morrison's thinking about election next year uh, instead of this year is, I think, because he's genuinely concerned that Labor are within striking distance if the vaccine rollout goes wrong. Uh, if there's more of these quarantine outbreaks, etc. So it's an interesting political climate, especially after JobKeeper comes off in March, Peter. Uh, the PM mm. must really be hoping the vaccine works and, and works effectively and there are not too many hitches with that rollout. Yeah, I think it'll be... Well, the focus obviously now in Melbourne is, is what comes after the flawed uh, quarantine model here. Is it moving to places like Avalon? We'll get to that tonight. Um, but these numbers are all factored into some of these decisions that National Cabinet, I guess, is going to have a look at. Andrew Clennell, as always, thank you for your time. Thanks, Peter. Right, coming up after the break, all the latest from Victoria, including the fallout after we broke the news about two very different nebulizer stories after the break. News doesn't have to be boring. The Brits have given Prince Harry a new nickname after yet another tell-all interview. Oh, God, is it the ginger winger? <laughs> <laughs> Let the team at news.com.au get you up to speed each day with their podcast from the newsroom. A couple were busted joining the Mile High Club. Well, I guess they can't fly virgin anymore. <laughs> Politics, sport, red carpets, royals. Get all the goss in just a few minutes. Follow from the newsroom wherever you get your podcast from. Welcome back here watching Credled. Well, billionaire businessman Lindsay Fox is in talks with the Victorian government to establish a quarantine facility for international travellers at Avalon Airport on the way between Melbourne and Geelong. The plan endorsed by Geelong-based Deputy Labor leader Richard Marles would see a temporary town of cabins constructed adjacent to the airport with capacity to house 1,000 travellers. For more on this, I'm joined now from Geelong by the CEO of Avalon Airport, Mr Justin Giddings. Justin, great to have you on the show. Can you, can you take us through what's you, exactly being proposed here? So what, where I'm standing at the moment is airside outside our new international terminal. The proposal is to bring aircraft in just behind me 
bring, be able to bring passengers through into the quarantine facility without actually going inside. So the whole process is seamless and um, we're looking to set up some cab cabins, just like you mentioned, uh, with outdoor areas mm. so people can get some fresh air, some sunlight and even look at the stars. And when did you first have contact with the Victorian Government about building this facility? Um, so the most recent proposal was two weeks ago. Uh, we talked about uh, with um, universities uh, towards the end of last year, early January, um, in terms of bringing international students back. Um, but really, the progression was less in the next last couple of weeks. Um, but really, it's just at a concept stage at this stage, and uh, we're hoping to develop it over the next couple of weeks as well. So, you, so your discussions, let me be clear, previously they're related to universities, but the only time you've started to discuss this with the government is on the back of this latest outbreak. Yes, that's right. Well, yeah, probably a week before. Um, so probably the last mm. couple of weeks where we really started to develop it um, in, in terms of this greater facility. And I've got to ask you about the cost here. Any ballpark about what this would uh, what this would cost in terms of uh, the infrastructure build? Um, look, we don't know yet, um, so we're really waiting on a scope of work. So it really will depend on just how large this facility is. Um, it will be expensive, uh, but so is hotel quarantine. So, but we need to do a lot of services work. We need to get some cabins in, and we need to do it really quickly. So, um, I would imagine there'll be a staged approach. We'll do a smaller facility at the start, and eventually it'll be able to grow over time to hopefully generate a lot of people coming into the facility. Oh, look, given it's on you know, your property, it's a privately owned airport, are you going to pay for the build and then charge the taxpayer you know, per head that goes through the facility? Is that the plan? Um, so we've made the offer of we can provide a site lease so we can just you know, basically give them the land and they can develop it or we can do a combination of investing as well. So it's really up for discussion. We haven't had any of those discussions as yet with the state. This is simply trying to get a system that works, that brings people in safely and with a, in, in a low contact way. And look, uh, I hasten to even ask this question because it couldn't be hard to be better than the current regime in terms of infection containment. But, but clearly, if you operate an international airport, you understand all the protocols of people coming in, all the custom rules and regulations. But are you confident you could do a better job at Avalon than they can do here in Melbourne? Um, I'm not sure about a better job, but I think it would just be a different environment. So, firstly, everyone will be able to have access to outside. The interaction with the workers at the quarantine facility can be done outside. So there's no hallways, there's no opening doors and leaving food outside. Um, and the cabins are all self-contained. So they'll have cooking facilities in there, they'll have toilets in there, they'll have washing facilities in there. And so really, the resident would be expected to look after the premises just like their own house. And all the interaction would be outside uh, in the open air. Just a quick one before we go, Justin. Would you be would you be looking at a model that co-located the workers out there on site to lessen the infection risk? I, I think that's an absolutely good idea. Um, of course, that's a matter for the government and you know the workers' willingness to do that. But certainly, we've got a lot of land. We've got seventeen hundred hectares of land to play with, and we could easily set up worker accommodation where they could come and just transfers back and forth so they're not going back out in the community. But again, you know, that's an offer, but that's just a matter for the mm -hmm. government to decide. All right, and just before we go, what's the sort of time frame? When have the government said to you that they, you know, I presume there'll be a public tender for this sort of process, uh, you know, all the, the I's dotted, T's crossed. What's the time frame on this? So from the get-go, when we get told to go, we reckon that it's going to take two months or so to be able to get the first cabins in, and that'll build up over time. Um, we've got a series of meetings scheduled over the next week or so. We've just done those today, and um, no doubt we're hoping to you know, get the go as soon as possible. But I know there is a tender process. I know that there are other people, like Tullamarine Airport is looking at it as well, and there are some other facilities. Yeah. So, so, you know, it's not a thing that we're definitely going to do this, but, you know, we, we're prepared to go through that process. All right, sounds uh, promising. Anything's better than where we are now, Justin Giddings. Thank you for your time. Thank you. All right, let's move on to more on the Andrews lockdown more broadly. I'm joined now for a 
Melbourne from Melbourne by Victorian Liberal MP Tim Smith. Tim, I've got to go to you. I'll, I'll go to you. You did a press conference today on the issue of Avalon Airport. I'll come to that in a minute. But last night I was talking uh, about this issue with the nebulizer, the severely asthmatic patient who used nebulizer. He said, having twice declared it, the, the commissar or the quarantine chief, they call her, Emma Kassar, well, she was questioned about this again today. Did you speak to him yesterday? And if so, what was the nature of that conversation? I can confirm I did speak to um, uh, the family. It was a productive conversation. And if there are any actions or, or um, uh, uplifts, we'll consider that as part of the, the incident review. Oh, do you now believe his account that he had told someone he had a nebulizer? Like I said, I'm happy to... Uh, what will happen with the uh, information we've gleaned is we'll include that. It's a simple yes or no. Do you believe his account? Because initially we were told that he didn't tell anyone. Well, it's, it's not as simple as that, and I'm not going to uh, breach their privacy any further. It's pretty hard getting an apology out of anyone in the Andrews government. I mean, this is extraordinary. I spoke to patient X, I'll call him again today. Uh, there's been more stuff-ups for him and his family today. Uh, it's just a calamity of errors. He's documenting it all. Um, he wants an independent uh, investigation into these issues, and I would hope the government makes that all public. But it's been pretty extraordinary, Tim, hasn't it? Well, good evening, Peter, and good evening to all of your viewers right around Australia. Well, Nebulizer Guy has been treated absolutely abysmally by Daniel Andrews, uh, Emma Kassar, and the whole hotel quarantine regime. I mean, the guy got a phone call to say he had COVID whilst he was in ICU recovering from COVID. I mean, this is an absolute shambles. I mean, and, and, and mm. he, to the best of my... To the, I mean, it's a little hard to follow what Emma Kasser is actually saying. But from what I can gather, she's had a conversation with him. She's indicated that she is apologetic in some way, shape or form, but she's not saying that publicly. Um, she should come out and apologise to this man, apologise for blaming him, giving uh, advice to the Premier that's clearly wrong. The Premier ought to apologise to this man too for essentially blaming him for starting this um, quarantine outbreak that has caused a five-day lockdown in Victoria. It's not his fault. It's, it's, it's yeah, well, the official's they, fault they for not telling him. They complained about him for a week. They complained yeah, they, about him but, for a week. Much of last week... His name or his name, his, his, his circumstances were washed out there as the latest scapegoat for the Andrews government. But she only spoke to him yesterday. Now, I don't understand um, how she could form a view and advise the Premier accordingly that all of the processes in the system that she runs were above board if she hasn't spoken to the bloke in the middle of it. And as you say, if he's in and 10 days in to a positive diagnosis, he's actually in intensive care, and that's the first time he gets a call from the contact tracers that tells you on every level this is a moribund system. It's a farce. It's a dangerous and tragic farce. And uh, this man is owed a public apology by the Premier and the Chief of the Quarantine Service for essentially... Well, and they, they started this last Wednesday. They blamed him, um, mm. unequivocally blamed him, uh, and it was their initiative to raise this issue uh, in the public sphere. Not his. Not his at all. And they've besmirched this man. He's, by all accounts, a highly credible, highly credible source, um, and I think mm. everyone realises uh, that it's the government that, that is lying, not this bloke. He was given permission to, to use the nebulizer in hotel quarantine, which, as every... Uh, expert has said over the last couple of days that was just an absolutely insane decision by those running that, that quarantine hotel at the airport. I know, and today we saw these uh, shocking images of people being evacuated out of the health hotel or the, the hotel for people that are infected with COVID in the CBD of Melbourne. And, uh, you know, all the, the accommodating staff, accompanying staff are decked out in PPE. And the poor old guests who have COVID have got you know, rubbish bags over their head. Now, Emma Kassar says it's all because they wanted privacy, they don't want to be photographed. I think it's extraordinary. Uh, I, I want to go to this issue, we just talked about it then with Justin Giddings, this idea that there needs to be now, rather than the CBD of Melbourne, there needs to be a quarantine facility either at Tullamarine Airport on the air side or at Avalon Airport, as we just heard from Justin Giddings. What's your view? Look, I said last week, and, and I've said I said a few times, actually, that 
having a quarantine site away from the CBD has merit. Uh, and Howard Springs in the Northern Territory being the best example. Now, I raised the use of Point Nepean. Now, we housed four or 500 Kosovar refugees at Point Nepean 20 years Remember ago. Remember it well? There is still quite a bit of infrastructure there from that time. It would obviously need to be greatly upgraded and upgraded very quickly. But it is state land and it can be converted to a quarantine station as it was created as such 150 years ago, I would imagine relatively quickly. Now, um, if the private sector is to be involved and to profit from any uh, purpose-built quarantine station, there must be, there must be a public tender process, a very transparent tender process with independent oversight. We don't want to see what happened in March where a $30 million contract for security guards went out the door in six hours. And, Peter, you were the person that brought that to public light. Uh, we don't want to see any of that sort of behaviour again. So I want to make sure that um, the well-known relationship between Mr Andrews and Mr Fox um, is just that. And I think that there needs to be full transparency in this process. Look, you make a good point. I mean, this is empty land. Presumably, you know, if the taxpayers end up putting all of this infrastructure, paying for the capital improvement of the land, at the end, when there's no longer a need for a quarantine facility, uh, the owner of the land gets it greatly improved, maybe pays a peppercorn, but it's never very much. I know how this works. Um, and then they could, what, you know, build it a hotel, turn it into something out there, and the taxpayer gets nothing, but the landholder gets everything. You make a good point about there needing to be, a, you know, a very sort of transparent process here. A very transparent process, and I think that it would be terrific if Lynn Fox and the Fox family actually paid for uh, this quarantine station at Avalon. I think that would be a, um, a wonderful gesture. They're a prominent Melbourne family. They've done extremely well, and I think it would be terrific if they made a, con a significant contribution to the formulation of this and the building of this new quarantine station that the government has couched today at Avalon. All right, I'm going to ask you about something in the paper today in the Herald Sun. Um, it was a piece by Marcus Bastian. He's known around the Liberal Party, former a vice president, I think you'll correct me, but, but he's saying he did a report back in 2015 that said the average age of your mates in the Liberal Party, members in the parliament, is 77, and over 90% of them were born in Australia. Now, I don't necessarily see that's a bad thing, that they're born in Australia. Um, you know, they're all elected, but I think the age is a real problem. <laughs> you know, one of the concerns people raise with me all the time is that Andrews has done all of these things, but... Where is the opposition? Do you need some generational change? I mean, do you need to bring about some reforms inside the Liberal Party in order to be at least competitive at the next election? Well, all, all organisations, political, business, sporting, uh, need rejuvenation. And um, the Liberal Party is no different, federal and state. So um, I, I, I would, I'd love to see renewal... I think renewal is a good thing. And, look, the honest answer is, over the last 20 years, we haven't done as well as we should have. In my lifetime, we've only won three state elections in Victoria. We, the, we as a political party, particularly, as I said, over the last 21 years, have not been as successful as we should have been. We need to look at the reasons for that. And, like in any other field of endeavour, get better, improve. And sometimes I have good days and sometimes... I have not-so-good days and, um, I, I'm, at the end of the day, I'm accountable to my branch members and to my constituents. And if my branch members don't think I'm up to it, then they'll get rid of me and that's how the Liberal Party works and I'm held to account every single day by the Liberal Party as the endorsed mm. candidate for Q. And, as I say again... Yeah, um, but you know and I know it needs, someone with, it needs someone with a bit of ticker to tap some of these people on the shoulder and say, mate, you've been there for 25 years, it's time to move on. Look, it's not so much about time, it's not so much about age, it's about performance. And um, if people Well, you're are in opposition, you've been there for decades. It's about performing, and as I said at the outset, we haven't been as successful as we should have been. We've got to get better, and I'm committed to getting better myself. All right, Tim Smith, got to leave it there. Good luck with that. We'll all be Thanks, watching. Peter. Thank you, Fisher. All right, let's go to a quick break after the show where we... Talked about it in the UK, now it's in Australia at our top university. No mums, 
no dads. Tell you about that after the break. A troubled young woman. Her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Doesn't stop, does it? Welcome back. You're watching Credline. Last week, it was the UK National Health Service adopting woke language guidelines, ordering staff to replace the term breastfeeding with chest feeding and breast milk with chest milk. Now so-called gender academics at the Australian National University in Canberra are banning any references to mothers and fathers. The ANU's Gender Institute Handbook demands university staff refer to mums and dads as gestational parents and non-birthing parents. For more of this madness, I'm joined from Canberra by Labor MP Joel Fitzgibbon and from Brisbane, the former Queensland Premier and Sky News contributor, Campbell Newman. I've got to start with you, Campbell. You know, this idea that we're banning mother and father at the ANU of all places. Where's Julie Bishop? She's the new Chancellor. What's going on? Yes, well, Julie Bishop is the Chancellor and this is an opportunity for her to show some leadership by uh, sort of uh, quashing this uh, little left-wing uh, sort of crusade that's clearly brewing up. Uh, and perhaps the, the, uh, the gestational parents and the non-birthing parents that are watching this evening who have their kids going there or contemplating their kids going there will rise up and say, uh, if you don't do something about this left-wing nonsense, our kids will go to uh, a proper university. Yeah, but you don't, you know, build somebody up by dragging somebody down. That's the problem I have with all of this, Joel. It's so divisive. We asked the Education Minister, Alan Tudge, about this today. He provided a statement exclusively to us tonight and he said, and I quote, this is woke rubbish and has the effect of undermining confidence in our public universities. I want to see the French code. This is Justice French's code to protect free speech introduced as quickly as possible. I'm working with the chancellors to see that that's done. Now, people at home might realise this. I mean, all universities have public funding, but the ANU is actually a Commonwealth authority, Joel, can the federal government do something more here? Well, it certainly has to express a very firm view, Peter. When I first heard this, I thought it was a G-up. I mean, what happens if I'm so fortunate to have uh, grandchildren in the not-too-distant future rather than teach them to say, Dad, Dad, Dad? They're going to say, what is it, non-birthing parent? And what am I going to be as a grandfather? Am I going to be a non-birthing non -birthing grandfather or grandpop? I, I just, uh, this is the best I've seen since the University of New South Wales with the, the proudest and longest-serving uh, mining school in the country decided to divest itself of any, any uh, financial investment in fossil, the fossil fuel industry. I mean, the world's gone completely mad, surely. OK, well, let's stay with crazy because Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews has been nominated for a political leadership award. And this is despite 800 deaths in Victoria, a 112-day lockdown. Goodness me, this is the McKinnon Prize. Campbell, I mean, it's like the fire brigade giving the arsonist a bit of a medal after the event, isn't it? Well, look, I did a bit of reading to, to know a bit more about this uh, prize and it's a pity that uh, uh, this has been contemplated. Make, we should make the point that, you know, it's a nomination, it's been shortlisted at this stage, but, you know, it has real... Uh, a real, there's a real peril here that the, the awards, which are relatively new, will be brought into disrepute. I mean, you know, I, look, real leadership is actually not relying on polling. Uh, real leadership is actually taking your community on a journey they don't want to go on. And I know there might be elements of that here, but he's managed to scare the bejesus out of people. And I don't actually see what's happened in Victoria as being real leadership. Real leadership would have him saying, we will take Australians who are trapped overseas with open arms. We, would, we will work with the Prime Minister to bring them home. That would be real leadership. No, the only award he should be going up for, I'm afraid, is an Oscar. Uh, for best foreign actor because there's a heck of a lot of acting going on uh, in his press conferences every time he steps out to speak. Yeah, not wrong. Who would you uh, 
Who would you put out there for the political leader of the year, Joel? I can't believe I wasn't nominated, Peter. Uh, <laughs> look, it's a fairly progressive organisation. You're at least you an honest politician. People. You're at least um, an honest politician to admit it's that. A Sorry. Pretty, it's a pretty, it's a pretty progressive organisation if you have a look at those people involved. But it's philanthropic, and I'm not going to be uh, critical of it. Uh, some good people uh, involved. Uh, I. I looked this up too, as did Campbell. I noticed Doris Berejiklian was was a recipient, uh, I think, last year. So last year, and I was a judge. Seemed to be sharing. Yeah, I was a judge sure. there, there last year. But well, well yeah, I do note though, as soon as Daniel Andrews got, as soon as Daniel Andrews got nominated, <laughs> I suddenly was no longer a judge. <laughs> but but you know, their, their well, main mentor is rewarding or recognising positive change. So they're going to typically go to progressive politicians and whatever you can say about Dan Andrews, he is certainly one of those. All right, I've got to ask you about this university lecturer. Uh, she claims she's got a relationship with your area in The Hunter. She slammed you, Joel, over your support for the coal industry in an article in the SMH, Sydney Morning Herald. She's a PhD candidate, Felicity McCallan. She says that you don't represent her and... You're all about perniciously exploiting Hunter residents about uh, the climate change debate. And it so happens, Peter, that I, I know her and her family very well. It's a family steeped in the coal mining industry. So, look, she's entitled to her view and I respect it. But, you know, I still live in the region and I won't stop representing uh, the many families in the Hunter region who rely upon the coal mining industry for their family income. She dismisses the 11,500 people who work directly in the industry as if that's a small number uh, and it doesn't matter. I mean, those people working uh, in those 11,500 jobs certainly believe they are important jobs, not to mention, as she failed to do, the 60,000 additional jobs that come indirectly uh, from the industry, whether they be closely associated through manufacturing or the local sandwich shop in Musselbrook or Singleton. So I disagree with her um, and um, good on her for having a go, but I still live there. She's in Canberra, um, you know, in a, a sort of social uh, discipline at the university. Uh, I'm on the ground and I know what's, in, what's important to our local people. And what's this split inside uh, the right faction with uh, you and Mark Dreyfus over... Labor's opposition to the government's plan to put gas inside the big pocket of money or the big bucket of money that is the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. You're copying it everywhere. What's going on? By the way, Peter, I should have said the, the, the diversity of the Hunter's economy has grown enormous and we've got an, an enormous pipeline of renewable projects happening in the Hunter region as well. Oh, but look, Mark Butler and I just like disagreeing, don't we? And a little secret... Peter, the, the party doesn't always follow my advice. It often does, but sometimes uh, we disagree. But I have a simple formula for opposition. You never let the perfect get in the way of the possible. Uh, it, the government has a bill. It might not be the way we would do things, but we are in opposition. And my view is that we should be supporting the bill. Mark Dreyfus has a different view, but what he demonstrated in that meeting yesterday is that he doesn't really understand the bill. He hasn't studied the bill. Is anyone going to get mugged by reality, Campbell? You've come out of the military before politics. You can see how volatile our region is here. This is the, the last time in our history, really, that we should be thinking about de-industrialising, you know, not making steel in Australia, uh, perilling sort of our balance sheet. Why on earth are we headed down this path? Peter, look, I have this sense at the moment that the, the, the sort of... The the, the, the leaders of Australia, the, the, the smart people everywhere, uh, in business, in politics, clearly uh, uh, in the media, have all lost the proverbial. They have really lost it because they're talking blithely now and with gay abandon about, you know, we're going to go to net zero and it's just, well, is it a hard target or how quickly, etc. And there is absolutely no recognition that there are huge impacts on certain parts of this country, regional Australia, of course, places like the Hunter, places like central Queensland. And I am getting increasingly infuriated with the Liberal Party as well uh, because they, they are selling out uh, those people in the regions. You know, I mean, I'm in the LNP in Queensland. I'm becoming every day closer to the inside of it, having started on the L side of it, because, 
you know, I'm, I'm with people like Joel Fitzgibbon and people like Matt Canavan who actually want to speak truth about this. Where we're going is reckless, um, it is dangerous and it is not being pro and it has not been properly thought through. And I would encourage people in those regions to make their views known if they're concerned about this to their MPs and senators. All right, well, I tell you what, the three of us are a bit of a unity ticket. We might have to start our own party. Newman, Fitzgibbon and Credlin. There you go. That, I'm sure that's got some we might, head scratching there in we might, even, <laughs> we, might, we might even become the recipients of an award, Peter. Who knows? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> We've got to stuff it up royally and kill a lot of people by the look of it. Anyway, got to leave it there, gentlemen. Thank you for your time. All right, after the break, I'll be back. My name is Manny Karoudis and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts. All right, before we go, a word on the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. Remember when Harry and Meghan were all pleading for privacy? Well, royal couple in exile will now sit down for a chat show chat with Oprah Winfrey. Wide-ranging interview, we're told, 90 minutes. It'll be all the secrets of the uh, ins and outs of the royal family. Extraordinary stuff. Harry said he wanted his privacy and he obviously went across the Atlantic. But I tell you what, I don't think anyone's buying it, least of all the Queen, hey? Least of all the Queen. But Andrew Bolt is up next. You'll see me tomorrow night, though, back here at 6. I'm Andrew Rule, the host of the podcast A Life and Crimes. Here are some of the things that we've been talking about the last few weeks. The brutal truth is that when you start looking at it, they always kill or injure a lot more than each other. The professional hitman used to be a professional hitman. Evil strikes in all forms, but particularly as stupidity. Life and Crimes is available wherever you get your podcasts.